Hi, welcome to Shift. It's PwC Canada's podcast series, and we're digging into key digital trends and topics that can make your business transformation a reality. I'm your host, John Finkelstein, and I'm also the creative director of PwC Canada. Welcome to the best of Shift. We've been around now for almost two years, and in that time we've produced, believe it or not, 17 episodes, featuring some great conversations with Canadian executives who are totally changing the game when it comes to innovation, customer experience, digital transformation, and way more. Now today we're going to showcase snippets of some of the best lessons learned, you know, some takeaways, some interesting anecdotes that our guests had to offer, some personal favorites of mine. So without further ado, let's get into the good stuff. Let's get started with our first theme, customer experience. You're going to hear some highlights from my conversation with George Saleas, who's the CEO of the LCBO. Check out how the LCBO is driving innovation and incorporating some crazy new wayfinding technology in their stores. It's really about enhancing the consumer experience, putting people at the center of their ideas. Super important. Have a listen. There are a lot of exciting things that we're doing in the store to attract these, these uh, customers. The new customer is looking for a more seamless environment, more seamless service. They want you to be anywhere, anytime, on any device. Mm-hmm. We have our mobile commerce as well. Uh, we're trying to create uh, theater in the stores. One of the apps that we're looking at right now, for example, is Wayfinding. Mm-hmm. We, we want you to be able to come in the store, subscribe to the app, and the, the wayfinding will tell you the location of the product that you're looking for. Another app that we're looking at is, is a, a beacon. We want you to be able to locate the product consultant as soon as you come in the store by using these. We want the customer to come into the store and feel that we are meeting their expectations, that we are creating a remarkable experience for them. We want the people that come in our stores to love us. One of the things that we're doing right now uh, in retail is we're taking over all of the tastings in the stores. Up until now, suppliers, they had their own people who would come in and do tastings. I'm going to own customer centricity, and I'm going to make sure that when the customer comes in the store, they feel like they got a remarkable experience. We're introducing a lot of mixology now. Uh, We are working with our spirit suppliers to bring in these unique new products to to introduce mixology that you can only see at the high-end bars and create that theater and that excitement so that people that come in into the store they feel like they can buy that product mm-hmm. and that they can go home and they can go online and they can google uh, or they can go on the uh, the lcbo.com and they find out exactly how that cocktail is made yeah. So the other thing that, that uh, the customer is looking for today is a story. You know why? It's because the products that we sell, in most cases, are products that you share. And that you put it on the table and you pour it and you start talking about it, uh, about the winemaker or where it came from or the variety or how many years you aged it in your cellar. And, uh, and then you compare it to the vintage before. I mean, there's so much that that you do with the products that you buy from our stores is incredible and we can help you tell the story amazing as you can see great things are coming your way from the lcbo i'm super excited about what they're doing we're moving on here and this was a new one for me because i'd never really 
heard much about open banking and I found this topic really fascinating. Hope you will too. I got a chance to sit down with Neil Parmenter, who's the CEO of the Canadian Bankers Association. And we really dug into how financial services are being enabled by digital. And it sounds kind of scary because when people think about financial services, there's trust and there's cybersecurity and there's fraud and all this kind of stuff. But Neil explained what the future of financial services can actually look like, what open banking means, and why banks need to keep up with the pace of innovation. If you think about all of the trends you're seeing in other industries and what consumers are expecting, they, they color and influence what people expect out of banks. So I always use the example of Uber. Uber to me is as much about the payment mechanism as it is the ride. I don't have to think about it. I get in the car, when we arrive at the destination, I open and I'm gone. You're seeing now with Amazon Go, retail stores where you walk in, you grab the items, you look at them and you walk out. More and more, people are gonna expect that experience in all aspects of their life. Mm -hmm. You know, if I wanna open up a, a new bank account or something, yeah. I got to go into a branch yes. and I need to bring my passport and my yep. blood samples and I need to fill yep. out 50 pages of. No, I mean, you're, you're, you're touching on one of the key elements. One of the biggest challenges we have as an industry is that the rules governing banks are under the auspices of something called the Bank Act. And the challenge with the Bank Act is that it only even comes up for a review every five years. And, that, and the assumption is, of course, that it's going to be modernized every five years. Well, the, well, the challenge with the Bank Act is that it literally governs everything soup to nuts in banks. So it's thousands and thousands of pages long. So even when the review is open, governments can't possibly update everything. So they, no. they tend to focus on a narrow slice. The technology exists. The customer expectations exist. The will among members exists to move to new forms. But sometimes what holds us back are the rules. If you and I had a Skype video chat, mm -hmm. and I was your banker, and you said, I want a mortgage for this amount and on these terms. And I said, I agree to that. It's, ev it's even all recorded. Yeah. There's no legal value to that exchange. But if I mail you an application, you fill it all out, you give me a photocopy of your driver's license, and you sign it with a pen and mail it back to me, that meets the standard. Customer expectations are evolving. And if we're serious about building an, an innovation economy, we can't hold on to things like wet signatures with pens and, and photocopies of driver's license. So hopefully you have an open mind on open banking now. I know I sure do. And you might have noticed it was a bit of a theme in those episodes. It was really about showing why consumer experience is so important and how through the examples we've listened to, your organization can hopefully keep the customer, the consumer, the human at the center of everything that you do. I'm going to switch gears now. And we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. That is trust. When I think about all the conversations I've had throughout Shift, talking about cybersecurity and trust, a couple of episodes really jumped to mind. The first one was with Sean Joyce, super cool guy, shared some amazing stories about how vulnerabilities and cyber attacks happen within organizations and how your company can prepare. Have a listen to these threat vectors. Hey, I'm curious. So hackers go through, someone opens up an attachment, malware happens. What's the end game? What are they looking to do? What do it they want? It depends. Uh, th there will be, so when I look at the five thread vectors, which I would break down for you, are nation states, terrorists, organized crime and criminals, hacktivists, and insiders. 
So typically the motivation for the nation states out there is to really gather intelligence. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is a lot of nation states that I think did not have the traditional intelligence collection capability, whether that's through um, satellites, human beings, and other types of things, that this thing called cyber is really giving them a level playing playing field. Mm -hmm. So you see the likes of Iran and North Korea, Vietnam, and many countries that are actually utilizing this as an intelligence platform. So we talked about the nation states a little bit. Let's um, Terrorists, I really think their ability is increasing. Terrorism is really proliferated around the world, unfortunately. Um, but let's, uh, I think to most of our listeners, that's not probably a threat vector that we need to talk about. And they're really looking at uh, I think focusing on government targets mainly, but uh, as they mature, I think they'll be looking at economic targets. Um, when you look to the, the next group, though, when I talk about organized crime and criminals, I think there is a uh, lack of understanding out there that there aren't these thousands and thousands of hackers spread throughout the world that are geniuses that do this each and every day. There are certainly hackers all around the world, mm-hmm. um, but the best hackers in the world are really focused in the Ukraine, Romania, and Russia, and they really leverage the tool sets that they develop and sell them. Then when you look at the the hacktivists, uh, I think that's an overlooked uh, threat vector. A lot of times companies will have board members that may be involved in some Uh, organizations, foundations that, uh, whether it could be bio, farm, uh, life science type causes, companies, issues in other areas where uh, they, they come under attack in the company by default. When you look at the last one and we're talking about insiders, I think that is a frequently overlooked mm. uh, threat vector. 30 plus percent of breaches are the re- result of insiders. Um, and so I think it really behooves most companies to make sure that they have an inside a threat program and understand the vulnerabilities that that presents. And I, I will define for this conversation, a, an insider is anyone with authorized access. So that could be consultants, that could be employees, that could be some third party vendors, uh, whatever. But it's just, uh, I think that's a threat factor that's overlooked. 30% is insider? That's right. And so if someone was to do that, are they allowing uh, people from outside or are they sharing secrets or data or files? So, so a lot of times it's authorized access, which means during the course of your normal duties, you have access to this. Uh, a lot of, as we know, right, when you look at a company's ecosystem, and I describe ecosystem as our con- connectivity to other business partners that we need to have to do business. So a third party is going to have connectivity to, say, PwC because they need certain information. Yeah. But then there's also the malicious insider, Yeah. Right. That employee that's purposely stealing information, intellectual property, those type of uh, issue things um, that can do great damage to a company. So out of that 30 percent, just for my own edification, it's not all malicious. Sometimes it's just unwitting, unknown. I wouldn't say that I would characterize most of it as um, not malicious. Okay. I think most of it, prob- most of the insider is, but there are some insider Uh, issues that come up that are not malicious, right. right? But I think most of it is probably there's a lot of um, disgruntled employees. That's why with a successful inside a program, 
there are a lot of stakeholders within the organization and that come together, right? If you typically come to work nine to five, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you start working noon to midnight, is that a red flag that we should be concerned about or are you just working on a special project? Right. So there's a lot of different uh, indicators that I think companies should be looking at that's going to keep them safer. Do you think that companies are taking these threats seriously? I think they do take it seriously. Yeah. So I think most CEOs uh, certainly list cyber risk as one of the top risks in the U.S. It is the top risk mm -hmm. in Canada. I think it's one of the top three, if I remember my stats correctly. So I don't think there's a question of taking it seriously. The question is, do they truly understand the investment and steps necessary? That was such a great episode. I love listening to that one back. Interestingly enough about Sean, he's a big fan of Chucks, those high-top commerce shoes, which I love so much. It didn't make it into the interview, but we talked a lot about it. So thanks, Sean, for wearing fancy shoes. Innovation's a word we hear everywhere. It's basically the buzzword of 2015, 2016, 17, 18, and in 19. But it's important for a reason. Organizations, man, they have to stay ahead. They have to keep up with the pace of change. And they really do need to challenge expectations and innovate new ways of working. I've had some amazing conversations about innovation and how to support an innovative culture within an organization. Chief Information Officer of the Government of Canada, Alex Benet, is an amazing example of someone who really champions innovation in cultures which may not be known for it. Imagine the challenge he had ahead of him, digitally transforming the Government of Canada. Yikes. In this episode, Alex describes how he fostered a more collaborative, open ecosystem in the government and how he got people on board when it comes to large-scale change. No easy task. Trust me. Trust him. Have a listen. Maybe I'm speaking on behalf of like all, all citizens, you know, but like, so how, how, do you, how do you do it? How do you drive a change agenda? How do you look for innovation in, a, in the context of government where it's slow to adopt or there's reticence. Yeah, so a couple uh, diametrically opposed, or what one some people can think is diametrically opposed concepts. And we need, our plan for us is to add way more discipline. That doesn't mean bureaucracy. It doesn't mean layers. We got to get way more discipline on how we choose our technologies, how quickly we deploy them, how, you know, it's okay to not uh, take five years to make the perfect decision, but make a decision and iterate. That's a discipline. On the other hand, we got to get more way more agile on how we do things. And that means hiring people within you know an acceptable amount of time frame because it could take up to a year to hire people um you know it means using more open source solutions maybe less proprietary technologies other governments have made a big shift towards that we haven't yet we're we're about to like policy wise uh but we will be looking at open source standards for web technologies we have 17,000 people we have to enable to use different kinds of technologies to work on different kinds of projects the world's way more collaborative more open innovation ecosystem and we still do very linear and closed that's the fundamental shift that has to happen. So there's, you know, there's the discipline side of it that will permit us to be a little bit more agile in how we execute. Um, and it means fundamentally changing how we do government. Like the reason I took the job is because of that. Um, we try to promote working in the open for all of our staff, uh, which means talk about what you're working on. Don't spend three years developing a policy behind closed doors and then ta-da, because you've probably missed the market, the pace of change at which things are moving right now. You know, so it also means that traditional areas that have never had to deal with tech in the government who still see technology as a back office enabling function 
haven't quite realized that there has not been a new business in the world in the last few years that's not digital by design and nature. Uh, so our policies are not just about just policies. You know, the whole world is digital now. And if we don't adjust our thinking, we are going to get things done to us. Um, so that means changing the tool set, changing how we engage, changing how we develop programs and services, doing it out in the open with more people, not just ourselves. We're no longer experts in anything. I think the days where we thought the government was the voice of authority on things are probably gone now um, because things are just moving too quickly and we're having a hard time keeping up with it. So we have to be a player in a much bigger pond. Talk to me a little bit more about the difference between digitizing government and being a digital government. Yeah. So governments around the world, I had the pleasure of being at OpenText for about five years where I was run, you know, lucky enough to run through a whole bunch of different e-government projects around the world. And, and at that time we were trying to, it was all about let's digitize the process. Um, so a lot of processing and technology, a lot of infrastructure technology, um, which was linear A to B to C to D, move this thing and turn it into a bits and a byte and then move it quickly, you know. That doesn't change the process. That just makes the process faster, which in itself is a noble cause. Um, but in today's interconnected society where Internet of Things is becoming a reality, where we're talking about billions upon billions of devices, where um, the voices of the crowd are astronomically more powerful than trying to sit at your desk to write a research thesis paper, like the model has shifted, right? So um, a digital government is one where your content's available by default, so unless it's personal or private or national security that it's released to the public so everybody can see it, you're working out in the open. And the reason for that is if you're a researcher, for example, you have no idea in other countries what people are working on. The internet is a very powerful and vast place. Uh, so what if somebody can augment your research in India and in Australia and in Botswana and all of a sudden you're leveraging the power of tens of thousands of people for your one research piece? The other facet of that is I would say the government wastes 99% of its capital, uh, which is content and information and data that never gets released. And you never know. One person's trash is another person's treasure. Like who would have thought that Ancestry.com or Flight Tracker would be close to billion dollar entities today with content that people thought was irrelevant? Um, so the, the fuel, the chip that we have in this sort of digital economy, digital world of us is public sector is our content and so a digital government is one that puts it out there by default by design that enables way more third parties to interact with it yeah what an incredible story and i think it really proves that when you're solving the right problems with the right people and you have executive buy-in anything is possible last up is my interview with jody kovitz founder of move the dial jody is a great example of someone who is continuing to challenge the status quo and I think the organization Move the Dial is an amazing example of why it's important to foster cultural diversity and how we can really empower women to succeed in technology and how that will ultimately help organizations drive innovation. Have a listen to Jody. Why does Move the Dial focus on tech and innovation? Tech is everywhere. Tech is everything. People ask me, um, why women, you know, and why, and why did you start with that? I think it really, really was about that first moment that I told you about when I looked around the room at, you know, a representation of Ontario's greatest tech and its most experienced tech leaders and that there were, were so few women. And then I started to dig into the problem and I didn't understand how pervasive the challenge was, you know, that there were just was not equal representation of women at the leadership table and creating companies and getting funded. So when I, it was really important to me to do some research because I went on BNN. I remember the day of this for the first event and I'm a data person and there was no data. 
in Canada that was meaningful. There was little pockets of data. There had been done some VC data. There's lots of data around women in, in boardrooms, generally in corporate Canada. But I had not seen a, a comprehensive look at the state of the nation for women across the tech ecosystem. But where is the dial now really shows why Move the Dial exists. 5% of tech founders in Canada are women. 13% of tech companies have a woman on their executive team. And we have stats all the way from STEM, looking at boards. And, you know, um, these stats really speak for themselves and really call to action the awareness for why this is so important. Yeah, that's amazing. So what challenges do you think big organizations are facing in order to actually move the dial in the first place? Like what, what's stopping them? There's some new challenges in the new economy. That's definitely one of the things that I think about. The way that the talent pool is structured, the needs of the individual people, um, the lack of diversity in the actual talent pool. The, these are really presenting different challenges for the, for the recruiters that are trying to attract technology talent, for example. You can't look for women who are excelling if there aren't any in the talent pool to begin with. Or if you don't know where to find them. Or, so that's one of the things that's very common that's in, in, terms of the, in terms of the conversation. I've been having with some of the corporations. So when we talk about what's part of the value prop of Move the Dial, it's really around, you know, for corporates in partnership, looking at, well, you know, we can we can meet the great talent. A lot, there are incredible women. And that is a huge part of my point. There are incredible women. Many, you know, brilliant scientists and engineers and mathematicians and, you know, experts in deep machine learning that exist in the ecosystem. But the, one of the challenges is around network. It's not necessarily been that, they, that there have been events or opportunities that have felt inclusive for the amazing rock star women that do exist. So part of it is finding ways to engage and nurture and cultivate community and really you know, bring people in from the woodworks. Like I am limited by my own network. So network effect is a huge uh, opportunity really for us to work on. Um, through Move the Dial, where we're really collecting everyone. So I was so fortunate to meet some incredible people who cared deeply about advancing gender equity for underrepresented minorities. Mm. And we have created a whole committee that is working on it. It is co-led by two incredible women, and they are working really hard with an incredible team to think about special initiatives of Move the Dial uh, to, to address and speak to different voices in the community. Women of color, for example, women from different uh, backgrounds and sexual orientation, different physical abilities, as well as to bring into every piece of the work that Move the Dial is doing globally, a component that considers the thought and perspective of different people. We talk a lot at, at PwC about sort of the notion of the power of perspective and human-centered design. And when you don't have the full representation of the humans at the table, you're missing half of the show. A big thank you to all of our amazing guests who have made Shift Season 1 such an amazing success. I loved every minute of it, and I feel so privileged to have been able to hear so many amazing stories from great Canadian organizations and their leaders. Now stay tuned because there's more great things coming your way. Season 2 of Shift will be launching soon, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shift. You can get more details at pwc.com slash ca slash shift. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to our podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, 
or your preferred podcast platform. Just so you know, this podcast has been prepared by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP, an Ontario limited liability partnership for general guidance on matters of interest only and does not constitute professional advice. Until next time.